This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. You are listening to Crawlspace on the Crawlspace Media Network. If you like this show, you'll love Missing, which is also hosted by us. Missing started as Missing Maura Murray, and now it continues raising awareness for all missing people. And we also have an entire network of shows you'll love. Check them out at crawlspace-media.com. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Tim, spring's here, sun shining, couldn't be better. That is true, Lance. It is nice and it's warming up here on uh, in the Northeast, and uh, it's nice. It is nice. And you know what else is nice? We get to speak with our friends, the now bonafide television stars, Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Of course, you know them from Mind Over Murder, the podcast on the Crawl Space Media Network, but they were recently in the Oxygen special, The Lover's Lane Murders, produced by our friends at Texas Crew Productions. And Lance, we spoke about their experience on the TV show. Yeah, and what a great conversation we had. This was uh, a rare conversation uh, that took place Friday on a Friday night. It felt good. It, it was a little bit more loose than our typical conversations. And it's always a delight to speak with Bill and Kristen. Um, I was really fascinated with what Kristen had to say about her experience on the show. And just balancing that with her professional life as a teacher which made for a very fun and, you know, at times very thought-provoking and uh, at times kind of emotional conversation. Yeah, it's a great conversation, and uh, Bill is not really holding back uh, as we talk about, especially with in regards to his relationship with the FBI and how he's trying to push this case forward again since the show has now been out and is kind of a tool is, you know, a, is there to be able to be used as a tool in the investigation. That's what he's pushing for. And you should check out the TV show. It's on Oxygen. Check it out. It's called Lover's Lane Murders. There are four one-hour episodes, and you can check it out. It's running on Hulu. You can get it on the Oxygen app. And if this is new to anybody, the Lover's Lane murders are technically the Colonial Parkway murders, and Bill's involvement with that, of course, was the loss of his sister and her girlfriend, his sister was Kathleen Thomas, and her girlfriend was Rebecca Andowski, and they were found murdered on October 12, 1986, so Bill has a direct involvement with that. And it's also really interesting to hear Kristen's involvement and where she's at now, sort of the progression that she went through. Absolutely. Check out their show, Mind Over Murder, because they've been doing a lot of coverage on this case, and they'll call it the Colonial Parkway Murders, but Oxygen named their show Lover's Lane Murders. Same thing, same same bunch of cases. Kathy Thomas is Bill's sister. Um, as you mentioned, her and Rebecca Dowski were found murdered. That was the first double homicide in what is known as the Colonial Parkway Murders or the Lover's Lane Murders. want to name the other victims here. David Nobling and Robin Edwards were killed on September 20th, 1987. Keith Call and Cassandra Haley went missing on April 10th, 1988. And on October 19th, 1989, the bodies of Anna Marie Phelps, who was 18, and Daniel Lauer, who was 21, were found along Interstate 64 between Williamsburg, Virginia, and Richmond, Virginia. Okay, everybody, so I do hope you enjoy this interview with Bill and Kristen. Make sure to check out the TV show and check out their podcast, Mind Over Murder. Thanks a lot for listening. And check out all of our fine shows, as always, missingcsm.com or crawlspace-media.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley of Mind Over Murder. How's it going tonight? It's going. It's going fantastically well for a Friday night. We heard you guys are working yet another evening, which uh, we want to thank you for. 
<laughs> it's really not work. It's more it like uh, an exercise of education and pleasure, really. I can't think of another way to end the week than to hear the sweet, harmonious, olive oil, docile tones of Kristen Dilly's voice. Oh, well, thank you. Zing! <laughs> zing. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that one. Thought that was going to go to Bill. <laughs> well, what made you think that was going to Bill? Well, I believe I believe his voice has been described as olive oil before. So yeah, it's his voice is like it's like as if you were running through a butterfly filled field <laughs> in an olive oil rain shower. <laughs> that sounds pretty slippery, actually. It's dangerous. <laughs> really. yeah, butterflies? Huh. That seems... <laughs> a lot of insects around. I thought you yeah. said this was a family show. <laughs> no, it's Crawl Space After Dark. <laughs> well, Bill and Kristen, you are now bonafide TV stars after having uh, participated in Oxygen's uh, Lover's Lane murders. Um, it's, it's a great show. It's on oxygen. I hope everyone checks it out. It is about the colonial parkway murders, which of course is very personal, um, case to you, Bill. And, uh, it is now something, a case that you're now covering in great detail on the podcast, um, which is, which is really awesome to see and hear. So tell us a little bit about this experience. Oh boy. Where do we start? Christopher? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You want to tell them what we really think? Um, it was, I really enjoyed the experience. It was uh, not something that I have had a lot of um, exposure to. You know, typically high school teachers do not become TV stars or not even a star. Um, so it was, it was interesting to be able to be involved with the production of it. Um, I got to see my partner in crime, so that was particularly excellent. And I was thrilled to be able to work with um, Jim Clemente, Maureen O'Connell, Lonnie Coombs, Dr. Laura Petler. Like they were excellent, um, really fun, fascinating people to work with. So I had a I had a hell of a good time. Bill, how about you? Uh, it was good. Um, it was a long time coming. Jim Clemente and I have been working on the show for. We first sat down, I think it's four years ago, to talk about we should do a series on the Colonial Parkway murders. And it took a, just a really long time to finally see it come to fruition. Uh, I'm very proud of it. I think it accomplished a lot of the goals that we set out to accomplish. Where I get frustrated is because I feel like there was more to say. And even though you're given... It's really three hours over four episodes when you factor in commercials and all that stuff. There's so much more we'd like to cover. One of the things that's great for the two of us, Kristen and me now, is that with the Mind Over Murder podcast and being able to shift our focus to the Colonial Parkway murders, we have more real estate to work with. And we can take some time now over the coming weeks and months to get into the case. But I think the television show was successful. It was good for what it was. I know that the two of you, Lance and Tim, have been through a similar experience with Texas Crew Productions and uh, Oxygen. So it was actually helpful to compare notes with you before. And now it'll be fun to compare notes afterwards in terms of our experience. Kristen, you said that typically teachers don't become television stars. Um, do you have a, are, when you walk into your classroom or if it's a virtual classroom now, are you just bombarded? Do your students come up to you and they're like, Miss Dilly, Miss Dilly? Absolutely Would... not. No? <laughs> no, actually very few kids know I did the series because it wasn't something that I advertised and it wasn't something I think that our school district wanted to get out. That <laughs> They have a teacher who's also an expert on a, you know, famous local murder case. Um, so I have very few of my kids who, who knew that I did it. Um, I, I have some, some parents who listen to the podcast and that's always interesting to get a parent email from someone that starts with, I'm a big fan of your podcast. Also, <laughs> let me talk about why my kid is failing. Um, <laughs> but no, I love that. very few of my kids actually know that I did it and, and like, I'm fine with that actually. Well, word will get around though, Kristen. And you did say the other day that they're transitioning back, by the way, to having teaching in person, you know, yeah. 
like we used to do it. Um, Back in the old days. <laughs> and Kristen did tell me the other day that one student mentioned something about her podcast and two other students whipped out their phone and they were like, <laughs> what's the name of the podcast? And yeah. they found it. So word will get around and I think it'll get around faster <laughs> as you're now transitioning back to in-person probably learning or whatever it is you guys call it in the education biz. Yeah. Hybrid learning. Yeah. When, when they, when they um, find out that you have a podcast and they're like, what's the name? And they start scrolling through their phone. They're scrolling through like uh crawl space, missing yes. empty frames, mm-hmm. true crime. Twi- okay. Just making sure that they, they <laughs> yep. have their lineup I, of the correct podcast to listen to. And I do tell them I have all sorts of friends with all sorts of excellent podcasts. Here are some other ones after you listen to mine. <laughs> awesome. Then do you, do you give them a promo code for better, better help? <laughs> I you like know, that. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done that yet, but definitely <laughs> what are you will. Doing? What are you doing, Kristen? Come on. <laughs> Five points extra credit if you use this promo code. <laughs> yeah. Promo code crawlspace. Best beans. Yeah, exactly. Buy a t-shirt, move up a grade. <laughs> so so tell us about the effects that this show has had on the case, um, you uh, you co-run, both of you, co-manage a, a Facebook group um, on the Colonial Parkway murders. And there's a new website that's re- revamped and really terrific, colonialparkwaymurders.com. Make sure to check that out. Um, it's got a lot of information and all your interviews. Um, so that that's a great resource. So well done on that. Well, thanks. That is all, Bill. But tell me how things have changed. Well, um, we've gotten a tremendous expression of support, which has been great. Um, uh, Kristen and I had put out the word on our two social media pages um, and, you know, Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram and so on. But most of our primary focus in terms of volume is on the Mind Over Murder Facebook page and the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook pages. So Kristen put out a question to our followers, which is what sort of questions would you like to see answered if they were springing from something you saw on the show or, you know, ideas that uh, have, have come to mind and that sort of thing. And we got hundreds of responses. People had a ton of questions. Now (laughs) we've, had to sort them out. Like, can we talk about that (laughs) (laughs) publicly? People really dive down into the particulars. Mm -hmm. They have ideas, they have suspects they want to talk about. They want us to name names. And there are some (laughs) things that we can't do, but nonetheless, we've done two bonus episodes now and we're planning a third where Kristen actually reads questions directly from our social media feed, mm-hmm. and then we do our best to answer them um, within the limits of the law. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to be accused of, um, oh, I don't know, trashing the reputations of any of the 150 persons of interest in the Colonial Parkway murders. Yeah, I'm not interested in the lawsuit. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, and at the same time, even if we did start naming potential suspects, we're going to be wrong 145 out of 150, maybe more. So if we start saying Jane Doe or Joe Blow was involved in the Colonial Parkway murders, it's we're going to be wrong, like most of the time. So we are trying to come up with the appropriate euphemisms on, on the air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And uh, our friend Blue Hall, who is uh, the leader of the Donna Hall Mike Margaret group, they use nicknames on their longstanding social media pages. Mm -hmm. So they'll refer to Freckles and everybody knows who Freckles (laughs) is. And we haven't gotten quite to that level of sophistication yet, but we are trying to respond to all of the expressions of support and all the questions that people have. And they come in every single day. People have tons and tons of questions. It's a complicated case. And people have a lot of theories. So you had mentioned uh, Jim Clemente. He was one of the producers on the show. Um, 
he just actually got featured with his brother Tim on Vulture.com as being mm-hmm. uh, sort of the forefront in ex-law enforcement who are now contributing to these creative or Hollywood productions as, as consultants and experts in the minds of murderers and, and, um, and criminals. What was it about these guys that made the two of you say, this is who we're going with? Because I'm sure you had other, um, you were fielding other uh, options or there had been interest about this uh, series of murders uh, previously. So what was it about Jim Clemente and, and his crew that made both of you say, okay, this is who we want to partner up with. Well, this is kind of before Kristen was directly involved in the television series. There was a lot of interest a couple of years ago when uh, Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester's book about the colonial Parkway murders came out. And so when their book, a special kind of evil came out, there was a big, expression of interest from television producers about doing a series on the colonial parkway murders. And from the people that I spoke with, I felt like Jim Clemente as a former FBI profiler had the greatest understanding of the investigative process, how profiling could help the connections in law enforcement and a very strong victim focus. And that I think made the difference for, for me at, at that point. And then Kristen's involvement comes up later when the show is actually under production in Virginia, the producers came to me and they said, you know, I had invited Kristen to the set a number of times and she knew all of the people involved in the production. And they were really impressed with her because she had tremendous amount of local knowledge, having grown up in Williamsburg, gone away for college and grad school, but had returned to the area. And they really liked her and they thought she was very smart and very well connected in the community. And it's funny, that actually came about in a very organic way. They actually approached me and said, you know, Kristen Dilley is our audience, which is, you know, women, largely seven are even our stats are 75% women. Yeah. And the producers said, you know, Kristen Dilley is sort of a, a sort of a, a very interesting transition figure from a true crime fan and author herself who has been very supportive of the families in the Colonial Parkway murders. And she kind of represents our audience, meaning the oxygen true crime audience. And they said, do you think she would be interested in appearing on the show? And I said, well, maybe you can ask. (laughs) I I couldn't guarantee that you were going to say yes, Kristen, but it was a very interesting process to see how that all came about. It was. Yeah. Um, And it was being seen on television is not necessarily that wasn't my first goal or even my second it kind of freaked me out a little bit watching myself on tv and i would rather not repeat that experience um but it was (laughs) um but but it was great to be able to lend some expertise to spend time with jim and maureen and lonnie um and dr laura and just be able to contribute in some way because the case is is very near and dear to my heart not in the same way that it could be for bill of course um, because I, I don't, I do not know any of the victims. It wasn't until I started working with Bill that I got to know the families, but, um, you know, I grew up with the case and I, you know, when you grow up at the Colonial Parkway, kind of breathing down the back of your neck and you're told, don't drive on the parkway at night. You have to be careful. You have to be cognizant. You do become sort of enmeshed in it. Um, and so it was, it was important to me to be involved and I'm glad I got to be involved. So now we find ourselves in this very unique situation where we're receiving all these tips that are coming in. (laughs) And then I've had some interesting go rounds with the FBI recently because I try to research the tips so that I can send something that's worthwhile to the FBI for the investigators to follow up on. And that doesn't always sit well with them. <laughs> <laughs> I've explained to the senior agents that 
we're not actually under any kind of false delusion or whatever that we're going to solve the Colonial Parkway murders. Far from it. We think that's the FBI and the Virginia State Police's job. But we are going to talk to people. That's part of what we do. And we're going to keep stirring the soup and asking people questions and talking to people and pushing to have resources put back into the Colonial Parkway murders. And law enforcement doesn't always react all that well to that sort of stuff. They, they kind of want, they very much like us to shut up and sit down. And quite frankly, we're absolutely not going to do that. And so we actually have engaged in pretty significant debate with, uh, particularly with the FBI over the last um, couple of weeks, especially because they, they tried actually to send us a very strong shut up and sit down signal. And I told them flat out, it's not happening. And we are not just going to sit back, lay back or whatever it is you want us to do. We're going to continue doing what we're doing. So there's, there's some conflict. There's some heat behind the scenes. Who from the FBI reaches out to you? Like, how dare they, first of all? But well, who from the FBI? Is it like um, their media no, 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 person? no, 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 no. <laughs> like, like I, I'm talking picturing about the, the investigators, the case agents, the case agents reach out to you. So you're telling a case agent of the FBI. No, 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 no. <laughs> Bill yeah. Thomas. Yeah. Is doing Bill Thomas thing. is saying that. <laughs> yeah. I, I can believe it. I can believe, I can believe it too. I'm not. <laughs> well, look, you guys have talked to a lot of different people involved in different cases over the years. I know you were just talking to Bruce Maitland about Brianna, his daughter, Brianna Maitland's case. There's a lot of friction that develops over time in these longstanding cases. You know, the Colonial Parkway murders, we're looking at 30 to 34 years now. There's a lot of family frustration, a lot of unhappiness with the status of the investigation. And now that the television show is out and running on oxygen, the families, not just my family, but other families as well are feeling like, okay, we kind of stepped back a little bit while the television show was, you know, in development and scheduled and so on. But now that the television show has run, we want to talk about the case and we want to move the case forward again. And there presents um, some, some pretty significant friction. Now, apparently, in the good news department, the FBI has been receiving tips on their own, which is completely appropriate. People have been calling in regarding the Colonial Parkway murders and leaving information at FBI headquarters, and they're following up on that. And then, and this is the part that makes the FBI less happy, I would say, we are receiving tips and researching them and then sending them into the FBI. And... They, that doesn't always sit well with them. But I, I just told them flat out, sorry. No, I didn't even say sorry. <laughs> I actually, <laughs> and it's funny, a few times I've, I've um, you know, been drafting a response. There's been sort of this debate back and forth, and Kristen's like, mm, you should take that out. <laughs> yeah, I've had, to, I've had to haul him back from the edge a couple of times and go, dude, you don't want to say that to the FBI right you now. Said, <laughs> that whole first paragraph has to come out. <laughs> Yeah. She's been saying, uh, um, she hasn't said this on the podcast, but she said several times, Bill Thomas unbound. Yeah. <laughs> now that the TV show is out, you know, I feel like we can speak a little bit more frankly about the status of the case without stepping on anybody at oxygen's toes. Cause so now we're stepping on the FBI and <laughs> Virginia state police's toes. They'll will follow shortly thereafter. Well, has your relationship with the FBI changed since the show, or has it kind of been like this for a while? This got very pointed in the last couple yeah. of weeks since the, <laughs> since the show hit. I've even asked some of our experts behind the scenes, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I won't get into the particulars of the debate or anything like that. I've, I've been asked not to reveal any secrets, and I'll do my best not to, but um, no, this is since the show ran. And I actually think it's related to the fact that the show is out there. And 
Lance, you said something a moment ago. This has come up before when I had done interviews with the two of you on your podcasts, Missing and Crawl Space, and on other people's true crime podcasts, it became very clear that their public affairs people at the FBI do listen to these podcasts. And they've actually contacted me in the past and asked me to take things out of the podcasts. And we've actually done that gone back to the hosts and said, would you please? And, and they were very specific at 57 seconds in this was said, and we would like you to excise snip that segment. It, not necessarily all that long, but if they felt like it, it got too close to a particular area of investigation uh, and, and that sort of thing. So actually this has been kind of eye opening. And hello, everybody at the FBI. Uh, they, their public affairs people do listen to these programs, and they um, don't necessarily like everything I've got to say. So, wow, how how cool is that? I, that the FBI is listening. I, I'm pretty sure we can identify at least half a dozen um, Apple reviews that some agents at the FBI might have written. No, they don't usually out themselves. Do they, do they rate and review? If you're listening, rate and review, guys. Come on. They really like the podcast. Where Check out all our other shows at crawlspace-media.com. Good, good rapport within, between the hosts, although sometimes they reveal you know, important investigative secrets. <laughs> something like that. But Bill, are you, are you at the point where your first – uh, course of action with this is to just put down on because Kristen, you said you know you kind of edit his uh, communications to <laughs> to government agencies. Yeah, sometimes Are, <laughs> does, is it apparent that that he is at the point where his first course of action is fuck it, I have nothing to lose. What's going to happen? What's the worst <laughs> that's going to happen? Well, because that's it, what it, I feel. Bill will, Bill will say sometimes jokingly, sometimes not that he is he is a stubborn Irishman. This is true. This is true. Um, <laughs> you know, and there have definitely been times where I've called. We try to check in with each other like a couple of times a week, usually at least once a day. So when I'm driving home from school, I'll give Bill a call on the Bluetooth, doing this safely. Um, generally, as I'm driving home along the parkway, we'll check in. Yeah, and, a lot of times you're on the parkway. I am. Yeah, I'm generally because I, I take it home from work. Um, and a couple of times recently, I've called and I've been like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm writing an email to the FBI. How does this sound? <laughs> She's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. It's like, dude, you got to, are you sure you want to say that? Are you positive? Actually, maybe you need to take five minutes and think about whether you want to say this. So yeah, I've had to have had him pull him off the cliff a time or two. This is true. <laughs> so I think that screw you and screw the memory of J. Edgar Hoover. It was a good thing for me to take that out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Actually, once I calmed down, I realized that was a good call. Yeah. As usual. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Kristen, you had mentioned that you felt close to the case, obviously not as close as Bill or the others. Um as you've been working on this, have you felt like you're getting closer? Like, do you feel like you are, in a sense, like a family member at this point? Or I'm not going to presume to go that far. But maybe like a like an honorary member. Uh, that I'm going to leave that up to Bill <laughs> to extend that particular uh, honor. But I, I, I have gotten to know all of the family members. Um, I, I feel very very deeply for them for the loss that they feel um there have definitely been times throughout the process of like doing my research because I've, I've bill and i've been working together for six years now um and that's a long time to be enmeshed in a case um and there were definitely times during like the filming um and then later as i was watching and you know getting eyefuls of graphic crime scene photos where i i i do get very emotional there was actually, we were filming or we were recording last week and I got emotional, which made Bill get emotional, which meant we had to do a certain amount of like, okay, stop. <laughs> let's, let's get collected. 
Um, I definitely do feel much more empathetic and, and sympathetic than I did, you know, growing up knowing that there were eight murder victims. Um, once you know faces and once you know names and once you know personal histories, it, it does it. It gets you there. There have definitely been times watching the series where I got choked up um, because I, I'd seen one particular picture of Kathy that I had never seen before. Um, and she's running up the stage at her Naval Academy graduation and her red hair is flying out behind her. And she just looks so happy and so full of life. And it, um, it, it choked me up immensely to see it because you can see what a vibrant, brilliant, beautiful person she was. And um, yeah, so there are definitely times increasingly where I feel like I've gotten to know them and I, I feel a lot uh, more sympathy for the families. Does that feeling when, when you see a picture like that, when you realize the type of person that someone could have been, what, what level of like anger do you have at that point? A lot, a lot. It, it, there are definitely times, it is of course nowhere near the, the level that Bill and the other family members have. Um, and that's, it does feel a little awkward sometimes when I realize I'm, I'm feeling angry about this, but I don't know if I'm justified in feeling that kind of anger. I, 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 I feel like I am, but th- yeah, there are definitely it's times. Okay to feel, I, I think it's okay to feel angry. You've been working on it for a long time, even though it's not, you know, not your family. It's yeah. okay to feel angry. There, there are times when, uh, you know, if I've been sort of enmeshed in this for a while and I, I really start thinking about it too much, I do go out into my garage and I hit the heavy bag for a while because it does make me very angry that there is somebody or multiple somebodies out there who have gotten away with murder for this long. I hate it. I got to get one of those heavy bags. <laughs> I know. That sounds great. There's so right? much fun. He said they hit the heavy bag and all of a sudden this whole new image came. And like, yeah. Do you put gloves on you and you take yeah. your wrists and everything? Yeah. Yeah. Now I, yeah, I have a heavy bag. I have boxing gloves. It's something that I like to do. It's very, very good, especially for a stressed out, uh, pissed off teacher who's done hybrid for a year and is getting <laughs> oh sick of virtual school <laughs> well it's not like being a teacher is stressful so no oh no 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 and being a being a teacher you know on the internet yeah. <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic in, in, if the kids are alive or not it's yep I, I don't know what you're complaining about. I mean, you get to stay home all day. <laughs> yeah, boy, you start to sound like the parents now. Yeah, wear yoga pants. Is your heavy bag one that hangs from a beam, or is it the uh, one that no, is on a stand? It's, it's got a weighted base. Oh, good. Yeah, good. It's got a weighted base. The, the level of anger that you were talking about, I feel bad for the beams of your garage if it was hanging. Uh, no, just feel bad for the floor and the. I actually kick over the heavy bags sometimes when I'm really angry, so I probably need to weight it a little better. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Revelations here at well, Crawl Space After Dark. Bill's not Bill's not the only one with an Irish temper, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> she is a dilly after all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, um, Kristen, you mentioned uh some photos of Kathy and you mentioned crime scene photos. Um, Bill, I imagine you you and your family you provided the the pictures of Kathy, obviously, the those photos. We did. And there was a lot of unhappiness, and I'm still unhappy with the use of the crime scene photos. As a matter of fact, I was on Twitter last night, just, you know, checking in and somebody was talking about the Lover's Lane Murders television series and how much they disliked it, which is, you know, their prerogative. But what was it they didn't like? They said something and I found myself nodding in agreement. They were incredibly unhappy with the Lover's Lane Murders because they felt that they constantly cut back to these horrible crime scene photos of Kathy and Becky. And they're actually right. I didn't, you know, their criticisms of the show, I didn't think everything they had to say was necessarily completely spot on. I I disagreed with some of it, but I have to say, I thought the crime scene photos were used too much. They were extremely graphic. There was a lot of heat behind the scenes where I said, you know, those exact things I said, you know, the crime scene photos are, 
are gory, they're unnecessary, you guys are using them for shock value. And at one point, keep in mind, I'm a consulting producer, which is the same role that uh, the two of you performed um, on your television series. So I'm seeing the cuts, you know, the, the various editions of the show when it's being developed. And I kept saying these crime scene photos are unnecessary. They're overly graphic. You don't need to be using them. And at one point, you know, in the early going, they were using a lot of uh, what they call stings, you know, music, you know, to add drama. So it would be like, dun, dun, that kind of thing, which made it even worse because it's so obvious that that's what they're trying to do is shock people. And so even in, Episodes two, three, and four, the show is roughly set up. There's four incidents in the Colonial Parkway murders, four double homicides. And so it's roughly one case per week over the course of four episodes. But I found that in episodes two, three, and four, whenever the FBI investigators who are appearing on camera, retired FBI folks, Maureen O'Connell and Jim Clemente, and then uh, former prosecutor Lonnie Coombs were discussing the show. They would sometimes reference something in the other Colonial Parkway murders that would be something that might potentially tie back into the first murder, which is Kathy and Becky. So, for instance, they're talking about Robin Edwards and David Nobling in case number two, and they reference some potential overlap with case number one. Every single time they'd cut back to these horrible crime scene photos of Kathy and Becky. And I, it was just completely unnecessary. So I, I'm still unhappy about it. Other people noticed. And I never said much publicly about my unhappiness about it because I'm trying to be, a, you know, a team player and all that stuff. And I'm literally rolling my eyes when I say that. But it's funny that here we are show's been out for a couple of weeks. We've gotten a lot of great reaction and feedback and tips and all the worthwhile things that you would hope would come out of a show like this. And yet here's somebody a few weeks later who's had a chance to watch the show and they offer some pretty thoughtful analysis, but it's interesting. I don't know this person, but they're saying the exact same thing, which is what is with cutting back endlessly? They, they actually counted. They said by their estimation, they cut back more than 30 times over four episodes to the lesbian couple with the horrible crime scene photos. So they did it over and over and over again. And it was unnecessary. And the frustrating thing is that, you know, that there's somebody like physically cutting that, like there's a human yeah. being yeah, yeah. making cuts and a producer looking at that. I knew the team and I told yeah. them, I think this is unnecessary. I think this is, uh, you know, gross and, un, you know, unnecessary. And let's just say my point of view did not prevail. No, I, I'm like picturing the scenario where the editor is cutting it together and they're like, we need to cut to something. And someone tells the editor, go to the crime scene photos again. And the editor is probably like, I've already done that like 15 times. Like, why would I do this again? And then a producer is saying, well, you know, that that's going to suck him back in. But I, I think what it did was the exact opposite. All it did was leave people thinking, why the hell are they cutting to this so many times? And and I think it, like the context of that scene or this or the scenes that that the, the crime scene photos are cut into gets lost because the viewer is sitting there going, why am I looking at this again? And that's what they walk away with. Well, and as opposed to showing pictures of these eight, beautiful young people when they were alive and vibrant yeah. Kristen was saying and, and doing worthwhile things, you know, whether it's a picture of Keith call in his Toyota Celica, all dressed up to go to prom uh, or, you know, whatever it is, which would convey some sense of the loss to constantly cut back to these horrific crime scene photos, I thought it cheapened the, the, the look and feel and impact of the show. And yeah. all I could do was object over and over and over again. And then finally, you kind of have to throw your hands up in the air. The show is the, the show. They get to a, 
a final cut. It's locked, as you know, and they aren't going to make any more changes. And it went forward. But it's funny, even though I didn't say anything publicly, and I just said, okay, I'm going to zip it. People noticed and people to this day who've seen the show are saying, why do they keep cutting back to these photos? I'm not going to dispute whether they cut back 30 times as this reviewer mentioned last night, but I'm not going to dispute it either because they're probably right. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, one thing I definitely got while watching the show is how complicated these, these cases are. And, um, it's, it's so much more than, than we can do in, in one episode. Like we can, we can't even, we can't even, we can barely even scratch the surface in one conversation on this case. And I did notice one thing that kept coming up during the show and uh, it's the possibility of more than one killer. Yes. How do you guys feel about that? Well, Kristen, you want to weigh in? Bill and I get asked all the time. And of course, you know, after the, this series came out, it was no exception. What our particular theories of the case are one killer two, are they all connected? Are they not connected? And I feel like there are days when I kind of go back and forth and go, oh, it could be one could be the other. I think that, right at the moment, and this isn't to say that's not going to change next week or (laughs) next month, I don't think the cases are related to each other. And I think that does lend itself to the possibility that there is more than one murderer walking around free in the Tidewater area. I don't like that. Like as a human being who lives here, I really don't like that. But I, um, I don't necessarily think that it is one serial killer who went from, you know, through four years killing couples. But again, you know, ask me next week. I might not believe the same thing. And my personal pendulum now has swung, you know, over the years, I've gone back and forth, related, not related, one killer, multiple killers. Where I am now, and I think I'm learning more to this day about this case as we go along, I actually think that there's a very strong chance that some of these murders are definitely not related. And I said something to Kristen, which I haven't said on our podcast yet, but I probably will soon. I'll say it here first. I actually said to Kristen the other day, we talk about rabbit holes. That's my exclusive sound effect. And Tim, Tim kind of referenced it. The case is so complicated and there's so much there. And so Kristen and I talk about going down the rabbit hole. And I actually said to her the other day, you know something? I actually think the Colonial Parkway murders concept idea is actually the biggest rabbit hole of all. In other words, many of the investigators have said to us in the last few years, especially that they think that these murders need to be looked at as independent events and the investigators need to drill all the way down on each one of these four double homicides and related cases, potentially related cases that happened at the same time. I actually think the Colonial Parkway murders, just the the moniker, the whole thing is actually the biggest rabbit hole of all, because you get down in that rabbit hole and you start thinking, well, you know, it's gotta be a serial killer. And you know something, maybe it doesn't. And maybe it's not. I think some or all of these murders are completely going to fall off the table. And I think other murders that have never been considered part of the Colonial Parkway murders could easily be mixed in here. And we may have some of the same offenders in various aspects of these cases. I don't think it's, I definitely do not think it's a linear one, two, three, four series of serial killings. Absolutely not. Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. And it makes a lot of sense because uh, these killings happen and then this moniker is put on the event, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the event, right? Like the, the, the Colonial Parkway murders. I don't know if it's intentional, but that moniker is translated in people's minds as murderer. There's a Colonial mm-hmm. Parkway murderer. Sure. And, yeah. and that is so yeah. much as so much. uh more dramatic to think about it's it's a story now it's not it's not it's not de- it, it, it gives you um 
a conclusion, a possible conclusion. Could you yeah. imagine if something yeah. was put out there and it said for a series, like a, a series of independent horrible crimes that happened on a stretch of road? Sure. You'd be like, yeah. okay, that doesn't pique my interest at all. It's actually kind of depressing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, you yeah. see the same thing in, you know, a number of cases, whether it's Zodiac or the Long Island serial killer, even the, the name implies in the Lisk Long Island serial killer case that there's one killer. And yet I've read a fair amount about the case. It appears likely in that example that there are at least two completely independent serial killers working that area of Long Island at the same time, maybe even competing in some sort of sick way. I think some of the Colonial Parkway murders, first of all, didn't even happen on the Colonial Parkway or even close, which people always were like, why are they called that? And we're like, we don't know. We didn't name them. <laughs> it's very frustrating to have people make assumptions. I had someone on social media today saying, it's a reasonable question, but I don't know if we have a great answer. You know, the question is always, well, what do you think the chances are that four couples would be killed over what is actually a three-year period mm -hmm. from 1986 to 1989 in, in a, a fairly similar fashion in a fairly tight geographical circle in a three-year period? I accept the point, but there, there are enough differences in the Colonial Parkway murders where you think to yourself, Maybe they're not related or maybe they're not mm -hmm. all the work of the same individual. Yeah. And, and doesn't it seem like one of the murders where the car seems like it was moved and, and possibly placed there? I believe it was Keith Call and uh, Cassandra yeah. that uh, I don't even think it sounded like they they even would have driven there willingly. Yeah. It, it seems unlikely it, it for Keith and Sandy heading home from a college party. The Colonial Parkway would have been, what do you think, Kristen, 15 to 20 minutes out yeah, of the way. Yeah. And they're supposed to be getting home for a 2 a.m. curfew. Uh, it, it seems incredibly unlikely. And at the same time, and this is something the investigators have said many times, the, there are similarities. And one of the uh, hallmarks of the Colonial Parkway murder series is that the movement of cars and the potential staging of cars seems to be one of the elements of the colonial parkway murders that seems consistent throughout that's a signature that this idea that the cars are moved post-mortem and they may even be staged in ways to create certain impressions that actually seems to be perhaps a unifying theme in the four double homicides do you think at any point during these homicides there was more than one killer at one of these scenes yes, it's a possibility some of it is just based on the logistics of the transportation believe it or not because you know you've got if you've got cars being moved from point a to point b after murders have taken place then the question becomes well how do you get back to wherever the offenders vehicle is does he run back to his car which might be a mile away or does he get a ride from his assistant uh, you know it's it, it the investigators have struggled with this one for years mm -hmm. they've come up with some scenarios that do work that you know for instance in in case number four phelps lauer on interstate 64 the car that belonged to uh, Daniel Lauer and uh, that he was traveling in with Anna Maria Phelps is found on the wrong side of 64. That is in the away from the direction of travel. They were heading from Amelia County to Virginia Beach. And yet the car is found headed in the wrong direction on this divided highway, headed as if they were driving back towards Amelia County. But as one of the investigators explained to me a couple of years ago, if he drove their car there and parked it at this rest stop, he could then leave the car there in a very obvious place and in a very obvious way where it was guaranteed to attract attention and then run across the highway 
It's a divided highway with a grassy median and some trees. He could run across, wait until there wasn't any traffic coming. It's late at night. And then finish running across the highway to the other rest stop on the other side of the highway where he left his vehicle originally. It does make sense. So one of the investigators, you know, she walked me through the whole thing and she drew a map and everything. And she said, you start here, you take them here, you drive them to this location at this hunt club about a mile away, the next exit eastbound, I think that is. Yeah, eastbound. Mm -hmm. Eastbound on Interstate 64, the, their original direction of travel. Kill them, leave their bodies in the woods laying side by side, get back in his Chevy Nova, drive it back, now westbound on Interstate 64, yep. park it at the rest stop, and then run across the interstate back to where he left his car. It makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. But there's this, you know, one of the things where people struggle, and Kristen and I have spent hours talking about this stuff with investigators and brainstorming with just the two of us, family members and so on, is trying to figure all this stuff out. Like, could this work for a single offender? It can, but the idea that there could be a second person involved in some of these cases does make the logistics of moving these vehicles around simpler. Yeah. What a really fascinating um, psychology behind that, because if you're talking about somebody who's planning that so detailed and we have the fortunate, uh, we're, we're fortunate enough to, to have Google earth, right? So we can look at the, the terrain and we can say, you know, if I park here, I can run here back then you're looking at just like a, an Atlas or, or you've done it before, you know, like maybe you've done a practice run on it. Um, if you're out to kill somebody as a serial killer, I feel like maybe, maybe, I don't know, like I'm not a psychologist, but what's stopping somebody from just pulling up, doing the, doing the deed, driving away? You know, why, why are we parking cars, running through woods, reparking cars, like staging the whole thing? What does that tell you from like a psychological point of like standpoint? Like, did, did they know their victims? And they're trying to make it seem like it's more random than it is. You know, I, I have no idea. I'm not trying to put any thoughts in anyone's heads. But the whole process and planning and execution of the plan and also the execution of the victims and then post-execution of the victims completing the plan. Like that is super detailed and, and, and precise and effective because yeah. they got away with it. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, that's definitely. a that's a lot of planning definitely. and then you kill somebody and then you finish the plan. Yeah. Well, yeah. some of the investigators have said to us over the years that the reason they're removing the vehicles is they're trying to create time, space and distance and to confuse the investigation. In other words, let's say a murder takes place at a particular place. If you then place the bodies in a vehicle and move them to another location and then perhaps take the bodies out of the car. And I think in every example, of, except the first, Kathy and Becky, the bodies and the vehicles are separated. But if you move the car from point A to point B after a terrible event has taken place and then place the bodies there and then move the car to point C, you're now creating all of this time and space and distance from the original event and the original location. You're obscuring evidence. You're confusing your investigators. And they think this is all very deliberate. Yes. That this person or persons are, are, are doing this. And like you said, executing some sort of plan. And it's funny, and this is one of the reasons why I think they've said from the very beginning of the case, they thought that this offender might have law enforcement or military training or both because of all of the logistics of the case and moving cars and bodies. And 
obscuring locations. They, they think this is all very deliberate. It's it's very interesting that you said that um, because I was originally thinking like, well, the odds in my head that it was a couple of different killers or two, not not simultaneously. I mean, I, I mean, a couple of different perpetrators of the murders separate of each other, not like they were operating in unison. Um, I was, that's where I was going until we started talking about this. And, and you said your sister, that, that was the first one. That was the only one that didn't have the separation of victims and and cars and that separation of time and distance. Is it possible that somebody could have done that and it got too close to them? Because they did not separate the victim and the car and the time and distance, and then the next ones, the subsequent ones, they thought, okay, I almost got caught that time. So what do I have to do? I have to separate cars. I have to make it look like uh, they shouldn't. Have, they they were over here. Like I have to confuse the scenario. They maybe maybe the person is somebody who was interviewed right right away after the uh, after that first murder. And was like, wow, that was too close. But they couldn't stop. And they, 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 they kind of enjoyed the fact that they got away with it and they wanted to confuse everyone now. There have been, you know, investigators who have talked about the idea that you're seeing the evolution of a killer through each of these different, you know, kills. So it's, yeah, to your point, Lance, like in the first one, well, okay, I should have separated the body from the car. Well, they did in the second. And in the third, maybe they did it so well that, I mean, we've never found Keith and Cassandra. Um, right. You know, certainly they they have reached, they sort of reached that pinnacle at that point. Um, that is something that has definitely come up, you know, from an investigative standpoint. And maybe they did it so well on that one that they were like, well, shit no one found that body. I, I need mm-hmm. the bodies to be found. So yeah. I can't do it so well next time. Mm. Yeah. Well, we've talked about the fact that in case number three, the disappearance of uh, Keith Colin, Cassandra Haley, that if his goal was to make a couple disappear, he actually succeeded in, in that example. Mm-hmm. Now he couldn't make a Toyota Celica disappear. So the car is left there with a lot of confusing uh, detail that, threw the investigators off. And of course, there's so many problems inside each one of these investigations with discarded evidence and missed opportunities and just horrifically um, bungled crime scenes that just make the whole thing uh, incredibly complicated. It's worth noting, by the way, back to Kathy and Becky for a second. Yes, Kathy and Becky's bodies were found in my sister's Honda Civic, but it seems pretty clear, though, they still moved the car likely with the bodies inside it because they don't think that the murder took place at this Cheatham Annex overlook where the car was found, which is only about 50 feet from the surface of the Colonial Parkway, the road itself. It's way too open a spot to commit a murder unless you've you know, really committed to this thing and you don't care who comes along uh, to maybe p- discover you mid process in this whole scenario. But it does appear even in that example that the murder took place elsewhere, they believe on the Colonial Parkway, and then the cars were moved to another location. So they took some steps in the first one. And as they go along, actually, Kristen's right, the murders evolve if it, if they are related and they are taking further steps to make the, the bodies disappear successfully in, in Keith Call and Cassandra Haley and fairly close actually in, in the Robin Edwards, uh, David Nobling example, which is case number two, where the bodies are thrown into the James river. Fortunately for the investigators and the families, the bodies ultimately floated back to shore. But if they had been swept out towards the Atlantic Ocean, that that couple would have disappeared as well. Well, I don't really tip my cap to people often, but tip of the cap to the two of you. You you do such a great job with everything. Seriously, like, I don't know how you guys do it, uh, honestly. Like, (laughs) we're just obsessed. (laughs) And it's funny for the benefit of your of your listeners 
these are the rabbit holes that you can go yeah. down. You know, mm-hmm. any one of these things, any one of the double homicides, you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes. Or even this discussion we've been having for the last few minutes about related versus not related. And what's yep. the story with moving the cars? I mean, you can go down so many avenues here. It's oh, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. I, got a, I got a tip today, which Kristen doesn't even know about. Uh, <laughs> Tow, tow truck driver, you know, which is, by the way, a, a theory that's come up before, you know, when you get into who else could approach a couple parked in a car in a non-threatening way. Well, law enforcement, obviously, but this guy actually is steering me back towards um, a tow truck driver, which is interesting in and of itself. This is somebody I know from the uh, discussion boards there, you know, there've been thousands of people that have discussed this case over the years. This guy knows me from the discussion boards and it's funny, you know, he wrote to me this afternoon and he's like, Oh, it's so-and-so from such and such a board. And of course I only knew him by his nickname, but you know, it's an unusual nickname. So he said, uh, I've got something I need to share with you. And, Mm -hmm. And he starts talking about this tow truck driver. And of course now, Maybe tomorrow I'll try to draw them out a little bit more with, can you give me some more specifics? But, you know, it's, we, we talk about it in, in this week's uh, podcast on Mind Over Murder. We talk about the Waterman theory. The FBI had this theory that the crimes were committed by watermen, the guys that work as crabbers, oh, yeah. fishermen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that area of Virginia. And there were a bunch of watermen that were considered potential suspects, including some people that could easily have been involved. But you can find all sorts of credible possibilities throughout this case. Right down the rabbit hole. 